This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Found Treasure, Gems of Great Leadership and Personal Skills. And joining me from California is author Lloyd Skip Amster. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I've been enjoying reading the books. I haven't the book. I haven't read it in its entirety, but I did get a, a general uh, feel for your style of writing. Share with my listeners a little of your background and why you have been an observational style of a writer and a leader. I literally have been kind of in a leadership role my entire life, starting in college and progressing forward. But uh, I actually spent 33 years with State Farm Insurance, and during most of that time, I was a leader for them, uh, an executive in sales. And so I got the opportunity to see all kinds of good behavior and bad behavior. And I've tried to duplicate the good behavior and eliminate those things that I thought weren't all that positive. Now, the stories you have included in your book, the first two especially, one has to do with a gentleman who's, like many of us, who is sedentary in his lifestyle and in his work environment. And two individuals in that same office, one is thin and healthy, the other one is a little bit on the pudgy side from overeating and bad food choices. You you highlight that story, and then another one that follows that has to do with sales and sales management and a, a meeting that uh, many of us who have been in marketing and sales in our history uh, can relate to, where the the leadership comes in and kind of rakes everybody over the coals. Now, are these taken from absolutely uh, true stories, or are these things that you have just observed and, and composited into a storyline? Uh, they're primarily things that I observed, and then I tried to put them into an entertaining uh, storyline so that people could enjoy reading the material as well as getting the benefit. But they're all based on actual experiences that I've had in one source or another. You have also used the the alliterative uh, term or the alliterative style of uh, using the five F's for a successful life. What are those five F's, and how do those relate to our readers? Well, you know, in reality, we all we all experience this. So the first F is actually people are going to foul up. I foul up actually at least several times a day. Uh, once you foul up, the most important thing is is that you have to fess up, uh, and that's something I see a lot of today where that's not happening. Uh, then the third one is once you fouled up and fessed up, you need to fix whatever it is that you did. Uh, oftentimes the fix is shoved off onto somebody else, and there's no learning in that for the person who fouled up. Uh, the next one is is to uh, forget about it. I see a lot of people that are carrying wounds that were done to them or they did to themselves many years ago, which are impacting their life at the present in a negative way. Uh, and so you need to move past it. And finally, my son helped me to identify the fact that uh, I needed a fifth one, and that was forgiveness. Apparently, he thought I wasn't really good at that. 
<laughs> so uh, forgiveness is, again, realizing that when you forgive, it's more powerful for the person who is forgiving than the person who is forgiven. So uh, so that that's kind of the core of my whole leadership style is those five F's. There's also that aspect of forgiveness that uh, sometimes many of us have difficulty with, and that's forgiving ourselves. Is that also something that you address in your book? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you just cannot be burdened with all of your mistakes and then move forward. You have to be able to say, okay, that that's done. I now need to move to the next issue. But in the process, you have to learn from the experiences that you had. You have uh, highlighted some uh, famous uh, individuals and, and uh, I guess, philosophies they have had. Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt is one that you say, in, a, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing, and the worst thing you can do is, any, is nothing. Uh, that also is a, a stunning fact of life that many of us are frozen on our steps when it comes to decision-making. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and, and the other side to that is is that most of those comments made in the book are talking about thoughtful action rather than a, an emotional action. We see too much of people, uh, too much of the activity leads to being emotionally hijacked. And at that point in time, people don't make good decisions. Skip, in your writing the book, is this, uh, are the, these notes and the ideas and the concepts, are they something that you have shared in a public setting, in public speaking and, and maybe in sales and marketing meetings? Oh, absolutely. I've done public speaking going back to my high school days. So that was one of my major roles. And uh, it's always fun to be able to do that. And it, it's, it's important that you get the audience to react to your statements. And every time I brought these things to bear, people are nodding their head and saying, yes, I did that yesterday. And, and uh, I experienced that and so on. So it's, it's material that's very easy to relate to. Did you write this primarily for people in marketing and business? Or is this something that anybody across the board would benefit from? I think across the board, uh, I think it would be very effective reading for people who are moving into leadership roles, but it really involves personal skills more than anything else. Uh, A great leader is always going to be someone who can relate to the people that they're attempting to lead. So, uh, and we lead every day in all kinds of different ways. So I think it's pretty broad. As a writer, are you also a journalist? In other words, do you keep notes of things that have occurred, or do you just have one of those uh, fascinating memories that can recall things in in a flash? According to my wife, I don't have the second. I don't have that memory (laughs) thing in a flash. But uh, I do take, I I have always been a note-taker and an observer. So I try to hold back in terms of making a statement until it is that I've thoroughly observed what's going on, try to evaluate it. So I'm making good observations. That's a wonderful skill just in itself. Most of us want to step in and uh, give an opinion immediately once we uh, uh, analyze or sum up a, a situation. I know I have that problem interpersonally with a family family setting. Um, my wife is always asking me how to fix stuff, and I tell her how to fix it, and she says she's not ready for me to give an answer yet. Uh, I'm, I'm a little too quick on the, on the uptake. Instead of just nodding my head and saying, yes, I understand what you're talking about. Uh, this is the same kind of interpersonal skill you have developed for business then exactly exactly i mean what you do at home and what you do at work uh has has a lot of similarities 
and the important part is is that people feel that you're a person of integrity, that you stand behind what you say, and when you make a mistake, you step forward and acknowledge that you have, and then you begin to the to uh, try to fix it and make it right. And so that's that's a critical factor in everybody's life. In addition to the five F's for successful life, are there other key skills that build on that or are developed from that? Uh, exactly. Uh, the the thing about how one presents themselves when it is that they have made a mistake, the conversations that they have, the way that they deal with their supervisors or, as you said, a family member or spouse, really critical as to how you deliver your message uh, and making sure that it's not self-serving, but it really hits the points necessary. So, yes, that's highlighted throughout the book. Skip, what motivated you to share your history and your insight with the world in in print form? Uh, I, as a a senior executive, I saw as I retired uh, a, a new breed of individual coming into the business world and so on. And because we're in a world that moves so quickly, many of them were not getting a lot of help when it came to developing their skills. And I thought that it would be highly a positive on my part to be able to provide my experiences so maybe some of those people as they are progressing could just get a little bit of a jump start and uh, live through my experiences and maybe make better decisions earlier. So that was pretty much what it was. I've noticed also in your book you've included some what I would call verbal or mental exercises to uh, address certain aspects of growth and leadership. These are the types of things that also might fit well into a sales or marketing team and into uh, maybe even a, a classroom situation. And Did you have that in mind? Uh, all of the above. Uh, it's important that uh, it's just the, the process of interacting with people and getting people to appreciate what it is that you're attempting to do. Again, someone is not going to, in a sales situation, buy a product if they often don't trust the person who's doing the presenting. So it's developing all those skills so that by the time you're interacting with others, that they have a true belief that you are looking out for their interests and really doing the right things important important skills and important wisdom that you're sharing. What was the length of time it took, besides a lifetime of uh, skill set, to accomplish getting this in print form? Uh, it, uh, it, it spanned probably about four years, uh, primarily because I'm retired and I, I understood and learned the word manana tomorrow. <laughs> uh, yes. So occasionally I would have surges and then I would back away. But the reality of it is it was about a two-year project when you look at the actual work that was done. Any major challenges that you didn't anticipate that had to be overcome? Yes, there were, there were many. Uh, I have written a great deal in the past, but nothing quite like this. I had to really pare down a lot of my materials so that it was uh, reader-friendly and uh, short enough to get to the point where people said, okay, I could read that and really walk away with some good things. So I think uh, cutting out the unnecessary and getting down to the core issues. In uh, sharing this with others, have you had an opportunity to get some feedback or some uh, responses from others in leadership? Oh, yes, yeah, lots of feedback. All, all of which has been incredibly positive. The way the book is structured, some people will go to a particular chapter 
that covers an area where they're struggling in that particular area. So it's not necessarily a book where you read it from chapter one to the end. Uh, so many have come back and said, I use this chapter to be able to help me on this issue and so on. So uh, it really, really is something you can refer to and try to get some information for something you might be facing tomorrow. Fabulous. And reflecting back on what you have accomplished so far in this print, is there another book in the future? Uh, certainly that's that's some somewhat of a thought, um, but I'm, I'm certainly interested in launching this one and getting the proper reaction, uh, and then we'll kind of go from there. It's a fabulously done book. Again, it's a conversational in style. I think that uh, anybody would benefit from reading this. If you interact with any human on the planet and maybe even a few puppies and cats and kitty cats, uh, you would also find this a benefit. The title of the book again is Found Treasure, Gems of Great Leadership and Personal Skills. My guest joining me from California is author Lloyd Skip Amstrup. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, it's online. It's it's uh, at Barnes and Noble, at Amazon. Uh, it's all over the internet. So uh, one just simply needs to put in the title, and it'll pop up for you. Excellent. And the last name is spelled A M S T R U P. If you're looking and doing a search online, and uh, you know, in a in a gentle way, stalking the author. Uh, again, thank you, Skip, for joining me today and sharing your story. I, I look forward to talking with you in the future. I think this is a book that would be a great addition to anybody's library, especially if you're in leadership or if you have a need of developing your skills or feel the need to maybe improve in some areas that uh, relate to others. Thank you again for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Third Journey, Making the Most of Your Life After Work. Well, that's a fascinating idea. Olderhood.com founders William R. Story and Robin W. Trimmingham, co-authors of this wonderful book, join me from Bermuda. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having Thank us, Jay. Well, it's a pleasure to visit with you. I uh, am fascinated by your book. It is uh, 226 pages, and it's well-researched. How did you become an expert on the third journey, and what is it? We fell into this quite accidentally. 
uh, because Bill was planning to take early retirement from one of the major banks here on the island. And Bill is not the sit-around type, so he was looking for something to do, and we've known each other for a long time. So he, he was, he's always liked to write, and uh, he was thinking about doing a blog. Yeah, so really what happened, um, Jay, was that, um, you know, from Jay, when I took early retirement, uh, I, I kind of started to look at my own pension fund, uh, and I have to say it wasn't huge uh, because I'd only been with the company uh, for about five or six years. But nonetheless, it was my money. Uh, so I thought it would be a good idea to get it invested properly and stuff like that. But uh, when I started to ask around, you know, with pension providers and stuff like that, you know, everybody was very nice and they were very professional, but they really weren't, uh, you know, kind of answering my questions. Um, so, kind of, you know, one one thing led to another, mm. and I realised that it might be an idea to try and put some of my thoughts on paper. Uh, so I started to write about, you know, how to how to transition from, you know, a busy working life to um, a retirement life. How to, you know, what to look for in your pension and stuff like that. And that's how the whole thing started in the blog uh, called Olderhood. The blog is, you know, has been running for just over three years, and that's kind of what started this entire process. It's a fascinating uh, idea, only because, uh, as someone who is on the precipice of retirement age, if uh, if I might uh, confess that, in fact, I'm probably uh, past that. I uh, I am not looking at a future where I'm doing nothing. I'm not comfortable with that, and most older citizens of the universe, uh, when they get to, say, 55, 60 years old, maybe looking forward to sitting around, playing golf, uh, maybe joining a bridge club or some other type of activity, that, and maybe traveling extensively. But there are restrictions that happen to everyone in their lives. Uh, in my case, uh, financially, because I've been self-employed, the uh, the resources are not there. What do you suggest to people who, who are in that predicament? Uh, many have to go to work, and uh, there are retailers that that look to senior adults for for uh, their work, their labor force. Is that something that you feel comfortable with recommending? Well, the number one thing, Jay, is for pe- people need to start to think about their lives entirely differently. Uh, when you and I were born, you know the actuaries had an idea how long we were going to live. Right. But medical advances in healthcare have completely changed, you know, how long you can expect to live. And when you combine that with the fact that there have been studies done which demonstrate that the average human body, yours, mine, builds, everybody's, was actually designed to last 120 years. Mm. And when you think about it from that perspective, I mean, most of us aren't even coming close to living up to our uh, personal potential in terms of longevity. So the thing that people need to wrap their minds around is unlike our grandparents who worked really hard and then maybe were retired for a couple of years and passed away, we can expect to live 30 years in retirement. So, yes, the money question is very important because most of us don't have pensions that will support us for that amount of time. But the bigger question is, 
what are we going to do with all of that time? Absolutely. I mean, as much as being, uh, you know, working in retail or being a greeter in a shopping mall is definitely an option for an older person, 30 years of doing that is a really long time. (laughs) So what, what we're trying to encourage people to do is to really, you know, open up, dig down inside themselves, and think about, you know, when I was in high school, what did I really want to be? What's that dream lurking inside me, that thing I've always wanted to do that I just sort of eats away at me because I never got round to it? I think, one of the, I think one of the points about the financial side of things, which we do uh, address in the book, I mean, we don't give financial advice, but we do discuss finances and the impact of finance, uh, especially if you don't have that much. The, the financial issue... It's very simple to say that when you're 35, 45, 50, 55, that you need to save as much as you can for as long as you can. You know, I mean, that's that's great advice. But, you know, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. And it's not that easy to put away, you know, any more. And some people just can't put any away. So... One of the things that we talk about in the book is that once you go, go over that threshold, the retirement threshold, whether that's 65 or before or after, don't matter. Once you go across that threshold, you can't turn the clock back. Now, what I mean by that is that you cannot say, hey, listen, I'll go and get a second job or I'll go work overtime. It's not that easy. You know, one, something really funny happens when you do turn 65 mm-hmm. is the night before your birthday, you, you know, you go, to, you go to bed as a very smart, clever person. And then <laughs> for some reason, the next morning when you wake up, you're stupid, according to you know, uh-huh. a lot of people in, in the workforce. So, you know, to, to get a, a new job, uh, you can change career, obviously. But, you know, once you get to a, a certain age, the business community kind of looks at you as being over the hill. Uh, so, yeah, you know, as Robin said, you can go and be, you know, work at Walmart or something like that, which is great. Uh, but, you know, you're not going to be making the same money that you were making. And you have to remember that as you get older, your physical ability to lift boxes, for example, may start to, you know, diminish. So it's a very, very difficult, you know, difficult subject, you know, the financial planning. You've done a beautiful job of uh, outlining the book into multiple chapters, and one of the, I guess, the first of the of several chapters that really leads the reader into a, a world of of good advice is overcoming the fear of change. Many of us are, especially when they reach retirement age, are very fearful about the future because to them it's uh, well, I, I'm not of any value anymore. That's one of the things that's, that that change uh, implements. You talk about managing the hard and soft impacts of, of aging process, uh, illness, uh, maybe having to go through the dating process again if your partner has, has passed away. How, do, how have you been able to soften the blows of those through your advice? Well, we are really very uh, practical people. And throughout the book, we try and offer a lot of tips and suggestions and ideas to get people started. 
Uh, you brought up the, the fear of change. Yes. That's one of the biggest stumbling blocks for older people. And it doesn't matter whether you're naturally a positive person or a person who struggles with positivity. Because, you know, the further we go in life, the more we like to think that we're, you know, we're adults, we're in control, we know who we are. And then all of a sudden, things change that are out of our control. You know, our bodies change, our circumstances change, uh, you know, the friends we've had a long time move away or, you know, are less mobile and we can't see them. And we find ourselves starting from scratch at a point in our lives when we, in some ways, we're least prepared for it. You really have to embrace the idea that, you know, this third phase of your life is your opportunity to get out there and do new things. Absolutely. You have to wake up in the morning with the mindset, you know, well, okay, it's another day and what can I do that I have never done before? Because this is the time in your life when you're actually free. You may or may not have lots of money. You may or may not have perfect health. But what you do have is your freedom. So the more that you can embrace the idea of allowing change into your life, the more things that you can actually experience. Yes, and you've you've highlighted in your book the the names of some well-known, high-profile individuals like Grandma Moses and others whose whose career really didn't take off until after what we would normally call retirement age. Well, or another way to look at it is there are people who really got the, uh, the notion that you never stop working, you never stop learning, you never stop growing. And, you know, this is particularly true of people in the scientific field. They're always puttering with something. You know, a chemist doesn't just say, okay, I'm retired, I'm no longer a chemist. They, they'll keep doing stuff. Yes, that's true. I think most, I think, I think most of us, as we've got older, we recognize that the body, um, is, you know, is on the backside of the slope. <laughs> so, so that's okay. But I think sometimes that we, what we do forget uh, or just bypass it, ignore it, whatever, is what, what I think we would call wisdom. That over the years, whether it's through education or just knowledge or experience or whatever, there has been a reservoir of wisdom that all of us, have, have built up over those years. Uh, and, and I think that's where, you know, when it comes to finding something new to do, um, that you don't necessarily have to do physical labor. You don't have to necessarily stay in your, you know, your previous type of, of work. Uh, but you can use the wisdom that's, that's there. And I, and, I, and I think, certainly from the research that we've done, that, you know, a lot of people just don't, want to recognize that. Uh, maybe they're shy, maybe they're embarrassed, etc. But the fact is, the fact is that, you know, you've got tons of wisdom. And if you can start to apply that, then, you know, you can really bring that out into a very, very meaningful uh, occupation, if I can use the word. Yes, absolutely. And another thing is PMA, or positive mental attitude. That certainly has an impact on your current health and also on your future uh, viewpoints. I, I was uh, look, looking at an interview the other day of a uh, humorist uh, in the United States, Carl Reiner, who's written a lot of uh, material for television and has been around for a number of years. He's now 95 years old. And in the interview, he indicated that 
he just looks forward to waking up every morning because he's got uh, projects that he's working on. He's trying to do more writing. He's just excited about the future. And that uh, has something to do, I'm guessing, with uh, his positive mental attitude. Well, I think that people who can keep, keep, keep inventing a reason for themselves to be here are the ones that do the best. Uh, you know, George Burns was still performing in his 90s. Absolutely. My old father is 84. He still lives in his own condo. He cooks, he cleans, he writes, he paints, he does photography, and helps to care for my niece after school. <laughs> He's busier than a lot of 50-year-olds. That's incredible. And, you know, so the more that you uh, can just add color to your life, in new ways, the better. And this can be true even if you are on a very limited budget, which is what we started talking about at the very beginning of this conversation. You know, what happens when you have a very limited budget and the kitchen faucet breaks? You know, you can sit there and have a meltdown over the fact that you need a plumber, you can't afford one. Or you can Google how to change a faucet and give it a go yourself. And I say this stuff to women all the time. I mean, so what if you've never changed a faucet before? You know, if you can get that thing off and take it to the hardware store, you know, somebody there will look at it and go, okay, well, you need one like this. So you take it home and you give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? That's true. Oh, you need to call a plumber. Well, by that point, you've already saved yourself money because you've got the parts that are required. And heaven forbid, you might actually manage to fix it. To fix it. Mm. Absolutely. In fact, I, I read a story of a, a, an individual lady who had never, I, I think, even owned a hammer in her lifetime, built her own home by watching instructions on, on the Internet. So there are ways to, to learn and do things. The title of the book, The Third Journey, what, how would you describe this? Uh, who is the, the, the market that's going to benefit from this? I can think of many, but what is your perspective on it? That's a, that's a great question, uh, because I think when we started, I think we looked at the demographic, certainly from our blog and our Facebook page and stuff like that. We've got about 75,000 followers um, over social media around the world. We're in about 20, 25 countries. Uh, so we had tons of you know, people to give us information. And I, and I think what happened was that we, we intended to write it for people who were approaching retirement. I mean, maybe in the age 60 group, 62, 63, 64. That was kind of where we started. As we progressed over you know, the research and, and we do workshops and stuff like that. As we progressed through that exercise, we began to realize that we needed to turn the dial, we call it, we you know, backwards, down a bit, uh, you know, through the age demographic. Um, and I think at the end of the day, by the time the book was published, we, we were really, you know, aiming at people from anything like 35 upwards, because I mean, clearly there are parts of the book that are more appropriate for 60-year-olds, but there are parts of the book that are more appropriate for, you know, 42, 45-year-olds. You know, it's not a universal chapter-by-chapter -chapter book for every single demographic. The idea, we believe, and certainly this is being proven thus far, is that people would use it 
uh, somewhat as a reference, kind of a guide. Yes. You know, that they have a particular problem or a particular issue. Uh, and they kind, of, they kind of go to the book and see what we're saying about this particular issue. But they don't have to necessarily read the next chapter, which is of something that's of no interest to them. We understand that. That's fine. That's great. Um, so it's not a novel. You know, when you start at the beginning of the book, page one, and you get to page 220 and say, wow, that was a great book. You can if you want, obviously. But you can cherry pick where you jump in and where you jump back out. So I think the answer to your question is anything from about age 35, 40 upwards, uh, male, female. Uh, we also found from a universal point of view that the, 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 you know, the issues that people have as they approach retirement um, you know, in, in Oregon are the same as People are the same age group in Okinawa and Japan. So, so it's a it's a very, very kind of worldwide universal approach. And your writing style, I will mention this, is very, very conversational. It's easy to read. It's it's engaging. It's not uh, stiff and starchy. It's it's wonderfully done with a lot of subtopics inside of each chapter, each of the fifteen chapters. The title again is the Third Journey: Making the Most of Your Life After Work. My guest authors who have joined me from Bermuda. William R. Story and Robin W. Trimmingham. Thank you for joining me today. Where can they get copies of your book? Oh, our book is available on iUniverse.com and also on Amazon.com. And they also can reference your website, which I think would be a, a good place for them to start and get acquainted with you. What is the name of that? The website for the book is TheThirdJourney.com. And your blog site is Olderhood.com, correct? It is. Fabulous. Well, great visiting with you. Thank you, Bill and Robin, for joining me today and sharing your story. This is, again, a book I would certainly highly recommend for anybody that's over the age of 18, (laughs) anybody that's thinking about retiring someday. Bill, Robin, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Jay. My pleasure. Best of luck and hope to hear from you in the future. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, The Symphony of Profound Knowledge. W. Edwards Deming's score for leading, performing, and living in concert. And the author is Edward Martin Baker. And Ed joins us now on iUniverse Radio 
Hello, Ed. Uh, hi, Steve. Good to talk to you. Well, great to talk to you. And you uh, look to W. Edwards Deming for great insights and leadership in the art of living. He's your mentor, if you will. And so what we're going to talk about as I look at the overview of your book about his teachings, it really comes down to helping leaders understand a individual's mental map, which produces improved human relationships, joy in work, and joy in living. So this is more than just business. This is overall life kind of guidance. Yes, uh, that's what I was trying to communicate. Uh, Deming, of course, uh, was teaching and doing seminars around the U.S. and other parts of the world from the 80s to the beginning of the 90s, and people tagged him with a label of father of total quality, total quality excellence, things like that, and they they kind of thought it was applying just to produ- manufacturing and production and, and business, and that, of course, was true. But it was much broader than that. It was a way of thinking that people could apply not just to their positions in, in, in organizations, especially the senior management, but also to the way they, they led their lives. Um, yeah, so you mentioned, I used the term mental map. Um, it, it was a new way of thinking to navigate through life wherever you find yourself, whether it be uh, with your family or uh, in in an organization. Why did you choose this kind of format where we have, I'm looking at your table of contents, you have the overture, the first movement, second movement, third and fourth movement. Why did you format it that way? Well, Deming, um, over the years, he always had uh, his teaching, behind his teaching was profound knowledge, but he never labeled it as such until toward the end of the 80s where he had reduced it to four components uh, that he called uh, a system of profound knowledge. And uh, many books have been written. He wrote many books. And uh, he often asked me to write a book. And I said, well, I'm just repeating what I learned from him. And then as the years passed, I, I began to to think that I should I should write this and uh, with the support and help of Aileron, uh, I finally uh, decided to work with them and, and to to write this book. But I didn't want to just republish something that somebody else had written. And then I realized, well, he he was a in addition to everything else, uh, being a physicist, mathematician, statistician, statistician, engineer, he was also a music theorist and a musician. And he he composed quite a number of pieces, and I thought, well, that that sounds like a really interesting way to um, to present his teaching in a different manner. And in fact, that's what he told me when he asked me to write a book. He said, well, your point of view would be a different presentation, and I think that would help people understand what I'm trying to do. So I finally came to that conclusion and presented it as as movements of a symphony, where there are parts, but all the parts are part of a whole because system thinking is the ability to relate the parts to the whole and see the big picture and so that was my my thinking on that and you spent 13 years with him at ford motor company very fortunate he came to ford 
1980, there was an NBC uh, video, If Japan Can, Why Can't We?, which really stimulated a lot of uh, business executives to call them because the, especially the automotive industry was in dire straits uh, since the Japanese were kind of outselling American manufacturers in their products. So people saw this and they invited him to Ford and it took a while to convince him that Ford management was serious. Uh, some executives visited him in his home in uh, Washington, D.C. and finally he agreed become a consultant to Ford. Now, he first came in January of 81, and he went right to the executive suite and read them the Riot Act, which they accepted because they, they, he had the reputation for being able to help organizations. And he came back in, in February, and I uh, there was a meeting, and I attended that meeting. And after that meeting, I, I uh, sat with him, and I, I showed him some work I had done, and papers I'd written in quality and human decision making and it was based on theory now I don't know if he so much agreed with what I had written but he liked the idea that I was using theory to develop my thinking and uh, he asked me what I wanted to do at Ford and I said well, I'd like to be in the uh, corporate quality organization and he, he he didn't say much then but a few months later I, I had an invitation to join the quality corporate quality office and uh, that began my 13 years with him, uh, 12 of them while I was still at Ford, and then in 1993, I, I had left in 92 and 93, I also continued to work with him. But it was a matter of um, working with him on seminars, and uh, later on in the in the uh, 80s, I took over and uh, managed his relationship with Ford. In other words, scheduled meetings with uh, senior executives, and also with the shop floor. He did love to visit the plant and talk to the people and get firsthand what their experiences were. Now, in your first movement called Theory of Knowledge, uh, one of the chapters is Management is Prediction. Why don't you give us a little sense of, uh, of that, uh, give us a little insight in Management is Prediction. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, in the kind of a way Deming looked at knowledge, uh, epistemology as some call it, theory of knowledge, the, the only measure really of a person's knowledge is the accuracy of his prediction. In other words, could he tell us what, how the forces are going to come together uh, to, to produce certain results and events and outcomes in the future? So he said it's really management's responsibility is the future of the company, and to the extent that they could predict, which means not just to, to guess, but to shape the future of the company, uh, that is a key component of leadership. You talk about, in as you described what your book was about, about Dr. Deming's performance on stage, uh, especially his conduct of the Red Bead Demonstration. And so tell us about that. Give us a little view of why you felt this was so important. Well, everybody did. And, and he did that the second day of his four-day seminars. And it was after that and his debriefing that people began to get a real feeling of his message. Um, he, he 
he ha- he called people up onto the stage to play various roles of inspector or production operator, and um, it was real theater, Steve. I'm telling you, it was just incredible. It was captivating, and uh, he had people um, sample from this uh, box of beads uh, over and over again, and he used the results, you know. Some of the beads were defective, and some of the beads were okay. The red ones are defective, the white ones are okay. And he, he recorded, he had a recorder plot the, or re, uh, record the results of the of the experiment. And he, he would insist that people don't produce red beads. Well, of course, the system wouldn't allow them not to produce red beads. But yet, after each day, Play after each demonstration, he played the role of supervisor, a really hard-nosed supervisor, and would criticize those who picked too many red beads. And of course, over time, people varied. If they did poorly on one day, they did great the next. And uh, um, he was trying to show that management doesn't have enough knowledge of a system to know when the system is producing the results or when it's the individual and most of the time it's the system and yet people are fired in fact he fired the three worst workers and kept the three best ones after four days and lo and behold even though they were labeled as best as one might in a performance evaluation uh, half of them were below average and, and they all did poorly so uh, that began to get people to listen to his message. So he took his theory of variation, in that case, theory of variation, theory of a system, and applied it to a real-life demonstration, something he could do on the stage. Now, Jim Masonvale is that his name? Mackin- Mackinvale. Mackinvale, Mackinvale. Uh, the owner of Gallery Furniture in Texas. Uh, he attended in, in one of these seminars, and people were saying... Don't follow Deming's advice. It's going to be disastrous. And yet, obviously, the rest is history. Yeah, you know, that was the same kind of advice uh, that people thought in business leaders and organizations. Like, well, why should I change? Uh, I've been successful doing it the old way. And that's what people told uh, Jim McInvale. He built a successful uh, furniture sales business by doing things a certain way, the old way, which was incentives and bonuses and um, uh, trying to motivate his employees by putting them in internal competition with each other and for the best results. And so he, his situation was at that time he had one location. And yet he wanted to increase sales. He was up to about fifty million a year, which was pretty good for a, a single, single store. But he was looking for ways to improve uh, his sales and grow the company even further. And he wanted to be able to do it through his management technique, not so much of uh, more, more real estate. Uh, so he he did attend uh, a Deming seminar with his wife Linda, and they kind of liked what they heard. And they said, well, gee, let me try it. And I thought that was amazing given his management style. But he did try it. And, of course, some people didn't like it. They they were all taken off commission and put on salary. And they were also put on profit sharing. So 
that helped. Some people left. They didn't want to work under that way because they thought they were the best salespeople. Well, Jim said, okay, well, let them go. I'll, I'll bring in people that will be able to fit into my new management style. And, of course, he lapsed back once in a while. But eventually he continued to manage the new way and continued to grow the business. Uh, of course, now he has a couple of stores in, in uh, Houston. But I thought it was just amazing that a person like him uh, could make that kind of transformation of thinking, change his mental map. So it went from competition to more cooperation. Uh, absolutely. not not Where people inside the organization could help each other. Uh, in other words, if one, one person couldn't close on a certain level of furniture, high-quality furniture, expensive, they could bring in one of their associates to help close the sale. So your book is based on the character and the teaching of W. Edwards Deming. As we wrap up the interview, give us some some closing thoughts on this man's profound impact on your life. Uh, he changed my life. I uh, went to graduate school. I studied industrial and organization psychology and some statistics. In fact, I had a teaching fellowship, and I taught statistics 101 and after spending time with him I both learned I learned that number one a lot of what I learned in psychology and industrial psychology such as performance evaluations the way they were conducted was not appropriate in fact it could be harmful and number two I regretted the way I taught statistics. Not so much that I taught the traditional way that people learn in Statistics 101, hypothesis testing and things like that. But I never, I didn't know how to put it in the right context. And if I were to teach it again, I would put it in the context of Deming's teachings where you would teach uh, variation and what it means to look at data over time. So within the context of Deming's teaching, statistics would have been more appropriate and more usable and more practical. But uh, the way I taught it, uh, then I think students would still have had a tough time uh, applying it. We've been talking with Edward Martin Baker. He's the author of his book, The Symphony of Profound Knowledge, W. Edwards Deming's score for leading, performing, and living in concert. Ed, what's the best way to get your book? Um, Amazon.com. Uh, I think most bookstores will either have it on the shelf or you could order it from the bookstore or iUniverse, the publisher. Thank you so much, right. Ed, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much for, for this interview. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.